Gracious God, we give you thanks on this Palm Sunday for the coming of your son, Jesus, that he comes in spite of the fact that he knows what awaits him there. Undaunted, he comes for us. And still he comes to us in his word. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our hearts and minds, to bless our study of your scripture, um, that we might be enriched and edified by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to start here. Maybe some of you saw this. Wall Street Journal uh, did a poll. This is just a couple of weeks ago. This is pretty much brand new. Here's just the lead from the article. It says, patriotism, religious faith, having children, and other priorities that helped to define the national character for generations are receding in importance to Americans, according to this new poll. And um, if you can look at real small, bring out your magnifying glass here. Um, I, I grabbed the, uh, the graphs from this article. So let me just point this out to you in case it is too small for you to see. So we've got patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement, and then money. All right, percentage who say these values are very important to them. So on the far left of patriotism, the first date marker is 1998. So in 98, I don't know, close to 70% said patriotism was important to them. The next one, 2019, it had gone down maybe 10%, down to around 60%. But notice just in the last four years, it's dropped below 40%. Religion, back in 98, it was around 60%. In 2019, it had reached maybe 50% and then dropped another 10% just since 2019, down to around 40%. Having children, that was at about 60% in 98. 2019, it's hovering at maybe 45%. And now in 2023, it's at about, what would you say, 30%? Yeah. Community involvement, now this is interesting. In 98, it was at 50% or so. In 2019, it had actually experienced a spike up above 60%. But then, I don't know, say pandemic, any number of other things come along. And now that's at the lowest of all those things, down at maybe you know, a little more than 20% this year. Very important to them. Ah, but what is increasing? What is on the rise? Money. In 1998, it was around 30% said money was very important to them. That had risen to 40% by 2019, and now it continues going up. All right, what stands out to you about this? Does this surprise you? Is it what you would have expected? What, um, just what, are your, what are your takeaways? What's your impressions from that data? Yeah, George. I, I read that article, and I thought it was very interesting. But, um, you know, when religion and family and your country fade, Something takes its place. That's true. Yeah. And it's money. Sure. Yeah. So what George says is if, if your, your faith fades, something else is going to be filling that gap, right? Filling that lacuna. And so um, according to this, money would be a big one of those things that's doing that, but probably not the, the only thing. Uh, Becky, did I see your hand? Oh, no. <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> yeah, Margaret. When they talk about community involvement, too, you know, there's been things like in Manistee, the Rotary Club dissolved. Oh, sure, right. You know, and other clubs are, yep. service clubs are way down. Yep, yeah, so service clubs have really, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, the participation in that has really gone yeah, down. and whether it's, uh, you know, especially with women, if they're working and have family. Sure. That's a time issue, and it is with men. Yeah, but yep, no, that's a good point. Yeah. Major shift to self-centeredness. Mm. Bob says a major shift to self-centeredness, okay? Focusing on, on the self and how can, I, how can I get mine, right? What do I got to do? Sure. Yeah, Ann. 
it seems like people are just really trying to get by, just trying to survive. Yeah, in a survival kind of mindset. Survival mode. Yep. And there's not a whole lot of room for um, other things when you're in survival mode. Um, but I don't know, I don't, yeah, I, I feel like money is part of the picture, but I don't feel like it's the whole picture. I don't. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And people are trying to get by. Right. And it's a, it's a desperate sort of time. Yep, a desperate sort of time. Yeah, Melody, did you have your hand up too? Yeah, now I forgot what it was. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you think of it, we'll come back to you. Yeah, Paul. This didn't happen overnight. This didn't happen overnight. That's been going on for 50 years. Yep, it's been going on. And so it, pre it predates just the last 25 years even. Yeah, George. Um. Religion has faded, but nothing's really taken its place. So there's big emptiness. And a way we can look at it as an opportunity as Christians. Well, this is really good. So um, George says maybe something else hasn't taken its place. I'd push back on that a little bit. I think my friend Dave Zoll wrote this book a few years ago called Seculosity. And um, his, his thesis with it is that when people become less religious about faith, they retain that religiosity. They just transport it to secular things. And so he's got chapters on, you know, politics, of course, um, but also fitness, work, all these different things that people still have this, this drive. Um, but George said right where I wanted us to go. When you look at this, would you say these are signs of a healthy culture? No. Would you say it's a culture that's in need? Yeah. What an opportunity for the church. We're the wealthiest country in the world. Yep. What, what an opportunity for the mission of God to meet these needs with the only balm that ultimately heals and satisfies. It truly is. Uh, so we can wring our hands about it. We can, we can cry out loud tears of lamentation. We can offer up prayers, and we should. We shall. But uh, we need to recognize that it is, at the end of the day, an opportunity for the good news of Jesus, what people so desperately need. And if they don't have it, they'll turn to something else. Yeah, Jim. I just <clears throat> throw out a thought. I, I, I kind of wonder about these same things. It, it doesn't surprise me at all about seeing these trends. It, yeah. I think we're, we're all very well aware of the trend, but it, it is sort of alarming, well, more than a sort of, it is very alarming to see uh, dropping off to the degree and the severity of yeah. it. So you could refer to, and then back backdate this. So it's been happening over decades, right? Right. And what happened dramatically in the, the, those decades and then track it forward to see what may have been a causative uh, factor. Right. And I call it the Saint Th or the uh, Doubting Thomas generation. Mm. We've been given so much feedback from science and from scientists and from you know, worldly investigations to try to prove to the nth degree the minutiae of what exists and why it exists mm -hmm. instead of used to being filled with the last generation of faith. Mm -hmm. And so when proving becomes that factor of the ultimate decision whether to stay with religion or to stay with anything in, in any of these factors, right. if you can't prove it, and prove it scientifically, mm -hmm. then there's some doubt. And once the doubt starts entering in, people are starting to fall off. Sure. 
Yeah, if, if, uh, and maybe if I could take that point and broaden it a little bit, if I can't see some cash value in what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if I don't think that it's going to necessarily benefit me right away and I can't demonstrate it empirically, uh, I'm not sure I want to I go with it. We'll stop there. I know we could talk about that the whole time. I, I start this way because we're going to circle back to thinking about the, the mission of the church in a little bit. But before we get there, let's dig into chapter 13 and start with the sacrifices, some of the sacrifices pleasing to God as the preacher sets it out here. All right, so we're in chapter 13 of Hebrews, picking up with verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? All right, so the theme of this first half of Hebrews 13 is on Thanksgiving sacrifices. And we set out this distinction um, earlier in the study that there are two broad categories of sacrifices in the scripture. And Hebrews especially brings this out. On the one hand, you have the atoning sacrifice. And how many atoning sacrifices do we have now, today? One. One atoning sacrifice. The once-for-all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Okay? His is the sacrifice that comes down from heaven and reconciles us to God the Father, atones for us, at-ones us, right? Puts us at one with God. Atonement, at-one-ment. One atoning sacrifice, simply and solely received passively by faith. Now, in response to that once-for-all atoning sacrifice of our Lord that comes from heaven above, we have various and sundry thanksgiving sacrifices that we offer back in response to him. Do these thanksgiving sacrifices set us right with God? They do not. Um, are they things that we have to do in order to forgive our sins? No. These are things that we do out of response of what he has done for us. And, I mean, I would almost say that there's no end to the, the list. The, here in Hebrews and elsewhere in the scriptures, it gives some of those primary ones, which would include what? What would be some of the, the Thanksgiving sacrifices that we make? So, several of them we do right in the context of the worship service. What, would you, what comes to mind? Praise. Praise, yeah. What else? Prayer. Prayer. Tithes and offerings. Um, you know, being nice to others. <laughs> For some of you, that's a sacrifice. Like, uh, our lives of obedience, if I can just put it in as broad and general way as possible, are our lives of obedience, seeking to live in the will of God, all of that is ultimately a thanksgiving sacrifice. The motivation for it is gratitude because God has done everything for us already in his son Jesus. And so our whole lives are lived in response that once for all sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice, now we offer up all manner of thanksgiving sacrifices. So here in Hebrews 13, that's what the preacher is, is um, getting at, and he kind of spells out, fleshes out, if you will, uh, some of these. The first one he mentions is hospitality. So number two on your handout, because Jesus set the table for us, so to speak. We set the table for others. 
Now, hospitality is one of these rich uh, Greek terms that's used in the New Testament here. And the, the Greek word for hospitality is philoxenia. Let me hear you say philoxenia. <laughs> right? Does that sound fun to say? Um, you can break it down. If you want to um, put a, a dash in between the O and the X in the middle of the word, it's a compound word. And philos, you're probably familiar with. Philos is uh, the root for friend, and in particular, um, and friendship, a brotherly kind of love, right? Of course, you know about the city of Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. Um, it's what the word literally means in that case. Um, so philos is a love. It's that kind of a friendship affection, right? Xenia is the Greek word for stranger or outsider, alien, okay? Um, if you've ever heard the term xenophobia, right? The same root. Xenophobia means a fear of strangers, fear of the outsiders. And so in a sense, you could say that hospitality is our answer and our solution to xenophobia, right? When we have a, a fear and an uncertainty about outsiders, about strangers, I'm not talking about when you're a little kid and like, okay, I shouldn't accept candy from them. But I'm talking about when we're full-grown adults, even as Christians, and say, I'm not sure about those folks who are outside. What he's encouraging us to here is say, no, show hospitality. Hospitality doesn't mean that you swallow hook, line, and sinker everything that an outsider is saying or teaching or promulgating. What it does mean is that you look for every opportunity to build bridges to welcome and to receive and to say, how, how can we show and share with you the love of Christ? That's what hospitality is rooted in. And it's rooted in ultimately the hospitality that Jesus has extended to us. As Paul says in Romans 15, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You and I were the outsiders. We were the aliens. We were the strangers. Jesus is the one who has come to us, who has built that bridge to atone us, to bring us into the family of God. And now by practicing hospitality, we seek to do that for others. But when you hear hospitality, what comes to mind? Like when you hear that word hospitality, what's like the, the first thing that jumps into your head? Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart. <laughs> right? So where, where it's like, what were you going to say? Purdy. Yeah. I, I, okay. Well, now we're getting closer. But like, if you're thinking Martha Stewart, that can seem sort of daunting, right? Like, okay, so to practice hospitality, my house has to be in order. I have to be able to make fancy tiny sandwiches. You know, um, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, if any other fans of HGTV, they're always talking about not hospitality, but they use an E word, entertaining, right? Hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining. Right? It's not the same thing as entertaining. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with entertaining. By all means, if you have that gift, if you have that desire, more power to you. I want your tiny sandwiches. <laughs> but as Christians, our call to be hospitable is much simpler than that. It's simply reaching out a hand to, to the stranger, to the outsider, and trying to get to know somebody. What is your name? Find out what's your story. Where are you coming from? You look different than me. You're, you're not the, the same as me. How can I get to know you and so I don't have to be afraid of you? Now, there's a, a low-hanging fruit for me here because yesterday the family and I, we went and saw the Jesus Revolution, okay? Uh, which is show, if any of you are interested in seeing it and you haven't already, it's showing at the Vogue Theater in Manistee this weekend. So you could go catch it. 
It's a good movie. I'm not going to dwell on it. It's a good movie. It's worth seeing. But one of the most powerful things about it is it shows how the uh, pastor in the story, his name is Chuck something. Smith. Smith. Chuck Smith. Uh, how he really had this transformation, played by Kelsey Grammer, which I thought was weird. Like, well, Frazier's a pastor now. That's great. Uh, but uh, it, it shows his transformation to recognize, okay, these outsiders, these folks who are weird from me, different from me, if I can get to know them, maybe I'm going to be able to bring the love of Christ to them. It's a beautiful movie of, to view through that lens of hospitality. But it's incumbent on all of us, and it's incumbent on us on a church. So brass tacks, next week is Easter. We're going to have a lot of guests come to church, right? Happens every year on Easter. Now, you could say, if you were serious about Jesus, you'd be here every week. Last week, we had to stand out in the cold with pastor. That's the serious one. Or you could reach out a hand and say, so glad to have you with us. That's a great opportunity for us to practice just a baseline of hospitality. Of course, not just on Easter, but every, every week. All right, that's one sacrifice, spiritual sacrifice that the preacher offers here. A second one is about suffering with those who are suffering. So number three on your handout, because the body of Christ endures sufferings, we suffer as well. Remember those who are in prison, he says. I'm convicted by this. I got to be honest with you. I don't think a whole lot about folks who are in prison. I myself have never visited a prison. I know that there's there's some of you even here who have um, embarked on prison ministry. And I think it's such a, a special and vital, important thing. I don't know. Christine, you've talked with, about this with me before. Could you maybe just share a little bit about why a ministry to prisoners is important? Not to put you on the spot. I didn't ask you about this beforehand. but <laughs> It's okay. Um, so most of you don't know my story. Um, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Um, I've got a years sober. Um, and actually, I've been in jail for almost six months. And so for me, it's a very important being, having been in with these women, knowing the addictions that they're coming from, the problems that they're coming from, um, and been in that lifestyle for quite a while, to bring the word of Christ. Because doing regular AA program taught me a lot, but until God was in my heart, I wasn't able to stop drinking and become a functioning member of society again. So it's very important to me, they, I feel like they are a forgotten element because they are put away, to bring that to them. I'm an angel and I'm saved, and I believe that everyone is capable of redemption, but they have to see the light. They have to have the light brought to them. And so that is something that I feel called to. Mm-hmm. And Bob, I've actually got some context, so you're good. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, just... They are forgotten because they are put away and off to the side. Yeah. And so, I mean, at the most basic level, I think this is a prod for us to be incorporating that into our prayers. And if it is something that you're intrigued by, talk with, talk with Christine. And, um, I mean, I don't know what that could look like. We have a prison in Manistee, um, and there, there are folks in need. I mean, it's remarkable. It's not, uh, it should not be a forgotten population. And certainly, um, uh, right here, we have that summons to not forget them. And then more broadly, for those, thank you, Christine. I so appreciate that. More broadly, also just those who are suffering in the, in the body. And it says, because you also are in the body. I read that as saying the body of Christ, right? You also are in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, if one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. 
For one member is honored, all rejoice together. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And going even further, Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I'm cut off there, but he goes on to say, I was sick and I was in prison and you visited me. So, so much of the mercy ministry of the church is grounded in this recognition that where, well, as Mother Teresa would say, we see Christ in the distressing disguise of the poor. And those who are hurting, those who are in need, we're able to extend that compassion of our Lord to them. It's a second spiritual or Thanksgiving sacrifice. Next one. Number, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Alyssa. I see in these verses, and this is the first time it's ever come to me. Yeah. Sure. They made it way down here. Sure. Yep. We have to go to their level. Yeah. And start there. Yeah. That's what I'm seeing because I was hungry and you gave me food. Right. You know, I was thirsty. That's what you gave me. You yes. gave me what I needed. You gave me what I needed. At That's right. That time. That's right. I didn't give you. A, he doesn't say I was thirsty. And you had me pass a brief but simple doctrinal test, and then you, no, uh, it's, you, you met that need. Yes, Sally. Um, you're probably all too young to remember Colson. Mm. Oh, yeah. Prison ministry. Yeah. And at the church I was at, they did have a prison ministry, and it was very popular at churches were uh, adopting this prison ministry closest I came was baking cookies for the people that take it. That's valued. But um, he, had, he wrote a lot. He, and, and his idea of reaching prisoners is really very good at reaching other people because you, reach, you can reach people when they hit bottom. Yeah. And they're the most vulnerable and they're most open to accepting um, Christianity or Redemption. Right. And so that's a, that is a very good model for reaching out, even if they're not in prison, but reaching other people. This is a great point. Uh, that here, here's a population that when folks have hit bottom, then they are the most receptive and open to receiving the good news, right? That's when we need. I mean, I would say that one of the, the big problems in our society is not that people lead lives of open desperation, but that, as Thoreau said, they lead lives of quiet desperation, where they convince themselves everything's still okay, right? I'm not, I'm not desperate yet. But when somebody is desperate, literally without hope, then they're receptive to and open to a, a, a source of hope, right? The true hope that we have in Christ. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Sorry, go ahead. Exactly. Well, and I have more to say on that in a minute, so hold, hold that thought. Let me, let me pu push on here. Um, so the next spiritual sacrifice, then, is with, with it comes to our bodies and sexuality. Because Christ, the bridegroom, has made us his bride, we glorify God with our bodies. Okay? Um, this is kind of the, the roots of that. For, uh, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We are the bride of Christ, therefore we seek to live lives that honor him with our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 
Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. As Christians, sometimes when it comes to sexual ethics, we just sound like, oh, we're just, we're puritanical or we're just, you know, hectoring about this, what have you. But ultimately, this comes back to a recognition that our bodies were created by God, have been redeemed by God, and now are habitations of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we want to honor our bodies, right? That it, that's the sexual immorality that it speaks of. This is not just, okay, what, what's the big deal? You know, you got to just tisk, tisk, tisk. But it's because this body that you have, redeemed by Christ, now is filled with God's spirit. And so honor it. Now, this is so hard to convey and communicate this message in a way that doesn't just sound, you know, kind of, again, the ju- judgmental sort of uh, finger-pointing sort of thing. But I think that when we can bring bring it back to these roots in redemption, then the message is able to, especially when I'm, I'm talking about with our people, with our, our fellow believers, with our young people, right? To recognize it's not just like, oh, sex is bad or something like that. Well, then you just have a whole generation that's just kind of disillusioned, right? It's recognizing, no, it's a great gift and it's to be received in the context of marriage between one man, one woman, right? Um, we go off of that we go off of that, and that's when things start to, to go awry, as, again, we've seen in so many ways. Yeah, Carla. Why does it not say that the wives are to love their husbands? Oh, good. Um, so going to that Ephesians reading, um, Carla's question is, why does it not say that the wives are to love uh, their husbands? Um, so at the end of that section in Ephesians 5, Paul comes back to it. He says, so husbands love your wives, and wives see that you respect your husbands. Um, now, there's a book that came out a number of years ago by a guy named, uh, I think it's Egerix, if I'm not mistaken, from Lansing, actually. Um, and the book's called Love and Respect. Have you heard of this before? L- Love and Respect. And he kind of builds a whole marriage theory, if you will, off of Ephesians 5.33. And his, his thing is that what really um, drives women is that sense of unconditional, affectionate tenderness. Love in that, in that sense. But for men... We're like, yeah, take it or leave it, right? You want to be sweet to me? That's nice. But what men really need is respect, a sense of being honored, of, of being esteemed in the eyes of their wives. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to what, what he's talking about. He goes on to say that when either of the spouses lacks that, we get into what he calls the crazy cycle. <laughs> and the crazy cycle is when the husbands don't feel adequately respected. Right? And I don't feel respected, and so I don't give to you the, the love that God has called me to. And so in response, what do you withhold from me? Respect. And you can see how it goes on from there. Now, Carly, your question is, why does it not say that? So I guess what Emerson Egerich would say is because the way that God has wired us is that what men need most um, uh, uniquely, especially in that context of marriage, is respect. So if he loves me like he should, yes. I will respond with respect. Right. And so then it's a, chi- yeah, it's a chicken and egg thing at that point then, right? This is where you have the chicken fight of like, all right, so who's going who's gonna to be respectful and loving first, right? I will when you do, okay? And the answer is who goes first? Jesus. The men, all right? Guys, this is, this is our calling. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. That means selflessly, sacrificially. Some days you're going to feel inadequately respected. 
guess what? Suck it up, right? <laughs> Give it to the Lord. Now, can you persist in that state perpetually? No, okay? And women have a calling in this too. I don't mean to let you women off the hook by any means. But when we talk about who's the first mover in this, it's men. This is God's, this is God's design and purpose, okay? Um, so, yeah. There's, uh, I'll get off the soapbox there. Uh, just got... well, it's important to know when it says women submit to your husband. Yes, yeah. There's a side to that that says they were wired to respond. Yeah, that's right. They're wired to respond, to respond to the loving leadership of their husband. And that's why, you know, Paul, I think hearkening back to Adam and Eve, it, it never ceases to amaze me in that story in the garden. Eve is there, tempted by the serpent, and then, right after that, she turns and gives the fruit to Adam, which tells us that Adam has been where the whole time? Standing right there, just watching and being like, huh, that talking serpent sure seems to be tempting my wife. That's weird. That's too bad. Let's just watch and see what happens, right? Um, well, perhaps. But this continues to be, this continues to be the problem for, uh, in, a lot, in a lot of relationships, frankly, is men not stepping up to the plate, but instead being willing to stand idly by. But that's maybe a topic for another day. Men, come to, come to Men's Guild Tuesday morning, 7.30, where we continue to be iron sharpening iron in that. Lastly, on these spiritual sacrifices. Golly, it's 11.30, that can't be right. Um, because Jesus holds us fast, we can hold money loosely. This verse is so interesting. Peter, my brother Peter's here today. Everybody say hi, Pete. This was your confirmation verse, wasn't it? 13.5. Yeah, 13.5, um, which I don't know what the, the pastor was trying to say to you with this verse. but Okay, there you go. Keep your life free from love of money hmm? uh, and be content with what you have. But it's so interesting, the, the way that the preacher roots this here is, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what that seems to suggest is that the reason people fall into a love of money is ultimately because of a fear of abandonment, a fear of insecurity. That's really where that comes from. I think it's spot on. And so conversely, the solution to that, he's saying, is a, a rooted, robust appreciation and belief, faith, trust that God is with me and he's for me. I know he's got my back. I know he's going to provide. So I don't need to, I don't need to love money. I don't need to, to seek to, to find my identity and security and that stuff because I know he's going to provide. I can hold it loosely. I can be content with what I have. I can be generous with it because he will provide. He will provide. All right, thus we have these spiritual sacrifices. Let's press on with the time we have into this next section then, which I entitled this section, Follow the Leaders. Follow the Leaders. Starting with verse 7. Preacher says, Remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those who devoted themselves to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. 
For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Don't neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, so he kind of brackets this section in talking about your leaders, okay, your pastors. Um, So number six on your handout, I say, we follow the great shepherd of the sheep and his under-shepherds. That's what pastors are called to be, under-shepherds of the great good shepherd of our Lord. So Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders or the pastors among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So there's a a call here to pastors, or elders is the word he he uses here, but it's the same idea, uh, to shepherd God's people well, as under-shepherds of the good shepherd. And he, he says to the people, remember your leaders and consider the outcome of, the way of the, their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, this is always, as pastors, you read verses like this and you're like, oh, gosh, it's intimidating. Like, I'd just as soon, you know, consider the outcome of his way of life, take it with a grain of salt, and then do what you got to do, right? <laughs> Not what it says. And I'd say it with out any kind of boastfulness with humility to say my goal as pastor is to lead a life that's worth following. I mean, honestly, this is what God has, has called us to as under shepherds is to lead lives that are worthy of the, the sheep of God and his flock to follow also. Do I do that well? Often not. I hope that sometimes by the grace of God in ways that I don't even understand, right? Um, but this is the, the summons for pastors. And then the call to the people is to the extent that your under-shepherd smells like the great good shepherd (laughs) and reflects him, follow him, follow him. But ultimately, keeping your eyes fixed on the good shepherd. Yeah. Uh, You know, it gives it as a noun, your leaders, but the original is those who lead you. Those who lead you. Yeah. And, And I think too many blindly follow their leader because he's in a position of authority. Right rather than the fact those who lead you, how are they leading? Well, they're giving you the true word of God, yep. and their life is reflecting it, which states it is the true word of God. And, and too often, we just have blind leaders. Yeah. And I mean, blind followers. Right. And that's inappropriate. Right, yeah. Those who lead you, not just because they happen to be in a position of uh, authority or leadership, but because they lead you uh, by the, uh, the quiet waters of God's grace. They lead you through the pastures of his word and feed you from that. Like Jesus says to Peter, you know, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. That's the, that's the calling there. But ultimately, we are following in the footsteps of Christ, one, one and all. And a couple of thoughts on that. We follow our shepherd, first of all, in being strengthened by grace, not grub. <laughs> or if we were sheep, grubs, right? Also not, not good. Um, right? Be strengthened by grace, not by foods, he says. Echoing Jesus. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We know that word well. 
And likewise, in Colossians 2, St. Paul says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, the preacher is pushing back on that uh, uh, temptation to go back simply into uh, Old Testament laws and regulations. He's saying, no, you live now under the reign and rule of Christ, not the reign and rule of those regulations. Now you are following after our Lord Jesus. Secondly, we follow our shepherd in sacrificing for others because he laid down his life for all, for all. 1 Timothy 2 says, God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's the verse that really grabbed me here in Hebrews in verse, um, verse 12. It says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That Jesus himself goes outside of, of the, the temple gates in order by his sacrifice to sanctify, to cleanse from sin the people. All people. That's his goal and his desire, that all would receive and accept that uh, prevailing, atoning sacrifice for them. Not just for the religious people, not just for the nice people, not just for the the handsome people, not just for the, the smart people, for all people. And therefore, we as his people now, as Christians, as the, the sheep of the good shepherd, we also want to follow in his footsteps and lay down our lives for others. Do, is, do our sacrifices amount to an atoning sacrifice? No, of course not. But we're seeking to expend ourselves for the sake of our neighbors, to bring them closer to Christ. John says, and not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Once again, here's that rhythm. We receive from him, and then we respond in lives of, of sacrificial love for others. That's the continual rhythm of the Christian life. And let's go one step further here, because this is where the, the preacher is taking us. He says, okay, so Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, verse 13, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, this is just a remarkable verse, you guys. Where do we meet Jesus? Outside the walls. Where do we meet Jesus? In the neighborhood. Where do we meet Jesus? Not just in the safe spaces. Well, we meet him in the dark spaces. We meet him in the alleyways, in the highways and byways. You want to meet Jesus? That's where we go to. That's where we go to. To follow him to those places. Outside. This is where it gets a little bit challenging and, and maybe it makes us a little bit nervous. Like, okay, Jesus, like... Like the disciples on, res- on the day of resurrection. Jesus is risen from the dead, and where are the disciples? They're hiding. <laughs> They're locked up. Right? The door is locked for fear of the Jews, John tells us. But what does Jesus do? He goes right through the walls. Because now, to him, in his resurrected flesh, those walls are permeable and meant to be passed through. For us, as the people of God, who are sent as he was sent, 
Now we go out and follow in his footsteps. And here I wanted to share a little bit, because it's apropos to, uh, to this, um, from what we learned on our field trip to Messiah Midland. I teased about this in the Inklings this week, but um, several of us went, um, Bob went, and Esther went, and Hans, who else, anybody else in here that went along with us, Anne, of course. Uh, Matt and Lily went, and um, Dave and Pat Meyer. There's 10 of us all told. Um, Pastor Meyer had encouraged us to go and visit this church over in Midland. Anybody of you know it? Messiah Midland? Messiah Luther Midland? Okay, I don't know the punches do. Um, we've talked a lot about Pastor Finke in the past. This was his church before he went down to Texas. Um, so now it's Pastor Ed Derner. And um, he was so generous and gracious in his time. I mean, here we are, a week shy of Holy Week. And he's like, hey, come on over. I'm just going to spend all day with you guys, basically. <laughs> and shared with us some of the, the philosophy, the principles underlying their ministry there, and then we really got to see how it was at work. And there's a, a lot to share, but I want to give you just a few takeaways or questions, really, that were raised by him um, and by our, our time there. Because he asked us very pointedly, he says, is the church a cruise ship or a rescue ship? Hmm. Right? Like, to put it that way, you're like, I'm pretty sure the answer is not a cruise ship. <laughs> Those refreshments are good, but they're not quite good enough. No. Um, that we're a rescue ship, that we follow the Lord who says, I have come to seek and to save the what? The lost. Those who are perishing. That the church is, first and foremost, a rescue ship sent out. And similarly, we're called to be fishers of men, right? Where are the fish? <laughs> they're out there in the waters, right? They're, well, I don't know if the, it quite works. Fish don't usually drown. But they are, they are in need of being caught. And then we will eat them. Okay, all, all metaphors break down at some point. Okay. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that we're not, uh, his line was, and George, you shared it with me as well, that uh, the church is called not to be, help me out here, George, the keepers of the aquarium, but to be fishers of men, Right? Fishers of men, not the keepers of the aquarium. To go out, to reach out to those who are in need. And then he changed the metaphor to, one second, um, he changed the metaphor to baseball, which was more speaking my language. And he talked about on-base percentage, okay? Now I'm not gonna, Josh, you and I might be the only ones who understand this here. So on-base percentage is uh, the, I mean, it's just the statistic of how often you get on base, okay? So if a thousand means you get on base every time you come up, Usually a good on-base percentage is like 400%. Includes hits and walks, and it's ultimately what drives around scoring runs, which is the goal if you're playing baseball, that you would score runs. He said in, in, when it comes to the mission of the church, what's our on-base percentage? What's like that, that thing, that basic practice that's just kind of keeping the mission moving forward? And I thought this was really in, intriguing. He said, you know, it's interactions with outsiders. But that's the, kind of the most basic thing, is just having more interactions with folks who are outside the family of God. And then those interactions, Lord willing, lead to a deeper connection. And then perhaps that connection leads to a relationship. And perhaps in the fullness of time, that relationship even leads to somebody coming to faith, being baptized. That's God's work. That's not ours. But that the most basic thing is just creating context for conversation. Places where we can have interactions with our neighbors and with those who are outside the, the family of faith. Now, for them, here some of the things that it looked like, and you saw the video, you saw this. It looked like an auto repair shop, 
that they have for their neighbors, um, especially folks who are not able to afford the full cost of uh, their auto work. Um, it was a, a grocery store, it was a, a health clinic, a coffee shop. Um, what else? What am I forgetting? Appliances. How, housing for one family in particular. Uh, appliances. Appliances. So they had an appliance repair shop. Why, how, what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, folks, it, it dual fold. Folks bring in uh, broken or appliances they just don't need. They refurbish them there and sell them back at a reduced price. But also they provide job training. They provide jobs and job training for folks who need it. But in all of that, underlying it is just an opportunity to meet needs, to go outside to reach people where they are. It was inspiring. I mean, it was really a little bit intimidating, um, but mostly inspiring. Yeah, it wasn't a bait and switch. We're doing this. Correct, thing. yes. I think that's important that we really recognize that we're there to love, not just a social gospel or a bait and switch. Correct. But we're really invested in <clears throat> loving people because of what Christ That's right. I, Jesus doesn't call us to love so long as people will listen to your spiel, right? Love so long as you get a proper uh, response in response. But it's, we love. To, to love, that agape love, is to give ourselves fully, selflessly, unconditionally. And then God opens doors for that next conversation. When you're showing love, when you're exuding hope, and they say, hey, tell me more about the reason for that hope that's in you. Then the door is open. That's his timing, and he gives us the word by his spirit to speak, too. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, one of his key points was, to me, powerful. Never make a person in need your project. Always yes. treat them with dignity. Yeah. And they serve a particular niche that's underserved. Because he said the super poor are really served by the government. About $65,000 can take care of themselves. It's that niche where people are working but don't have enough to make ends meet. Yeah. And don't rob them of their dignity. I yeah. thought that was very powerful. That was very powerful. Don't, don't make them your project. That's right. Hans, yeah. I was going to say that was Alice. The Al, what's called the Alice population, which is an acronym for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, which in Manistee County is 49% of our population. I mean, you've worked with Alice population, too. You're probably familiar with that, Jill. Um, it's a huge percentage. I was looking at the, the numbers. Lake County is actually the, the worst in the state. Um, Manistee is, is right up there. Benzie County is not much better. Uh, it's a real challenge in our area. Folks who are working, I mean, you know people like this. Maybe some of you are even in this, this spot where it's like you're doing a couple of jobs just to make ends meet, right? You're just trying to, to hold it together. Uh, so it was, that was uh, a really compelling part of that presentation. Anyway, just to, to circle this all back, you know, this is, like we've said, this is the, the summons of the church is to, to go outside, to meet the needs of folks where they are, to share the heart of God with our neighbors in the neighborhood. And when we look at where our society is at today, the need is tremendous, which means that the opportunity is enormous. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says, but the laborers are few. And if I may, just uh, one little thing. We did the procession today. Thank you for being good sports with that. Every year we do it. Every year people are like, why are we doing this? But one of the reasons I do it is because in a small and subtle way, it reminds us that that's ultimately what we're about, to, that we, what we want to do, which is to be sent out bearing the, the praises of our Lord onto the sidewalks of the neighborhood, right? Out to our neighbor's 
to share with them all glory, laud, and honor, and ultimately, hopefully, summons them to meet the Savior. All right, I'm sorry, George, I cut you off before. Go ahead. Okay. Um, one of his points, the pastor down in the middle, uh, he keeps ringing back and forth. If your church isn't willing to go out, then you're what is called a, a country club church. Hmm. And you're just within yourself, you meet on Sunday morning, and then that's it. And maybe that's kind of obvious to me, but maybe that's why religion in America is going down. Hmm. It has no meaning to people. Right. Outside the church, especially. So we have to go out there, like was mentioned before, we have to go out there and meet them. Right. And we, we don't have to quote verses or anything else. Right. Just be friends. Be hospitable. Yeah. You know? Be hospitable. Exactly. Like, you don't have to have all the answers. Just to be, this is one of the blessings of living in a pretty mean, <laughs> spirited age. If you're just like gen, generally kind, people will be like, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, what are you on? Like, I'm on Jesus. That gets back to the Jesus revolution, right? Uh, that's my drug. Um, and I, the opportunity is tremendous. You don't have to be a theology guru or expert. Just show that, that kindness. Yeah, Christine. Can I piggyback briefly? Please. First one, uh, the jail and prison ministry again. If you are a light for Christ and your heart's on fire, you do not have to have any experience with addiction or anything. They need to see the light of Christ in the darkness. So if you ever feel compelled, you don't feel like you have to have it, a background like that. Um, second, I know there's a lot of homeless people in Manistee. And one of the th- and, and I'm sure other areas. One of the things you can do, you're going to see a lot more of them in summer comes and they're out and about more. If you ever feel compelled, don't give them money. Because you don't know what they if they are addicts, you don't want to feel that. Get them a meal. Carry snack bars with you. Give them a snack bar. Give them a bottle of water. Um, take that moment to talk to them. And the third point is we are not to convert people. We are to plant seeds. Mm-hmm. Plant one little seed. You never know where that's going to go. You may never see that person that you're talking to or working with, like in you know program. You may never see them come to faith. But what one little seed, one little act of kindness, may lead them to that faith someday. That's exactly right. It's not our job to... God's the one who does that. Through his Holy Spirit, working in the Word, where and when he wills, in his timing. And you might just be one person along the way. Yeah. You, know, you started a meta- metaphor that... Uh, that had done the rescue ship. Right. And he showed a, a picture of uh, a dock with all these ships yeah. at it. And it's like, this is the model of our church today. Everybody's kind of huddled together. You don't like one rescue ship. You can just go across the dock to the other. Uh, and so, But those rescue ships should be out rescuing people, not sitting at the dock. Right in the harbor, yeah. Yeah. Whoa. I hope you feel a little bit challenged by that, and maybe you're like, uh, I don't know about that. That's appropriate. I mean, this is, how do you think the disciples felt all the time when Jesus was talking to them? Like, they were never like, yeah, this is great. This is really good. Like, no sandals, no clothes, no sandals. What? What? Esther, go ahead. I think another thing that he said that was very impactful, he says, don't worry about getting out in the river or getting out in the water. 
Because you got a life jacket. That's right. You got Jesus. Yep. You're, you've, you're, you're baptized. You're claimed by Christ. He's taking care of you. Now you can go out boldly and confidently meet Christ outside where he is. Yeah, Bob. You know, I, I almost want to apologize for my first response to your opening here. What is it saying? Is it self-centeredness? All these are institutions that people have, have come to a place where they can't trust them anymore. Hmm. They're disillusioned. Yeah. More than anything else, people are disillusioned. Sure. And so they turn to those resources that they in their minds can depend upon. Yeah. And how, how do we help people learn to trust again? Hmm. I noticed that he knew so many people by name as they came into the grocery store. So they've been there several times. And the story of the first time someone came in, they're almost ashamed or they're hiding. And then pretty soon they're coming. And they learn to trust those folks and depend upon them, not in a, in a project sort of way, but here's someone I can count on. Yeah. And, and it's actually not just providing needs. It might be rebuilding the ability to trust. Sure. That is a capacity. That's a terrible loss. It is. The inability to trust. Yeah. And it takes time, too, right? I mean, those relationships, it's, it's a, a long-term ministry. Thank you guys for being patient. We've gone, gone beyond time. I wanted to close with this. Um, it ends with this beautiful benediction. And uh, one of my favorite Christian musicians guy named Michael Card, he has put this uh, benediction to song. And so I just want to close. There's no um, visuals to it other than the picture. Fittingly, from this album, there he is out on a boat, out in the, out in the waters, right? So I invite you just to listen to this song as we um, finish up our study of the book of Hebrews.
Grace be with you. That was Hebrews. So, we'll see you next week, hopefully sooner than that. And, uh, this is Dad's table, not your dad's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. We'll see you. Thanks. Nothing's <laughs>